0: If you have your Bibles on you wherever you are at home, uh, I would ask that you would open them up to Revelation chapter 3. I know it sometimes is a little bit chaotic when you're um, wherever you are in in your closet or uh, on your couch to have a Bible on you, but it will help you immensely in kind of following along with the message. Um, Earlier this week, Jenna and I were sitting on the Shuttleworth's patio chatting with Kat and Alex over some really, really good coffee that Alex made. And it was this idyllic moment of quiet. There was beautiful scenery, a light breeze, and great conversation. But then I heard what sounded like a million firecrackers all going off at once. And Alex sprang out of his chair. And he's not a very excitable person sometimes, usually. But he sprang out of his chair and said something to the effect of, run for your life. Now, this seems like an apt place for me to pause and explain. Uh, A few hundred feet up the hillside from the Shuttleworth's house, uh, there's a cluster of some very tall trees. And they're so tall, in fact, that the largest of them, if it were to fall over, it would, in just the right direction, it would crush the Shuttleworth's house, smash in, and destroy the poor souls who were sitting on the patio having coffee. Luckily for us, uh, the cracking sound we heard was one of the smaller trees in that cluster and toppled over without causing any damage. And the other ones, I think Duquesne Light is coming this week and they're going to take them out. Um, But uh, it turns out that they are rotten inside and that's what's causing them to fall. The trees are dead. And this fascinates me. These trees look mostly fine on the outside. Uh, they still have some greenery. It wasn't like this like, hulking mass of brown falling towards us, it was green. The trunk, though, is rotten inside. Um, they're basically a Christchurch Fox Chapel rector search waiting to happen. Um, and it turns out uh, that often when trees die, they're dead long before anyone can tell that they're dead. And as I was thinking on this, I realized that churches are really the same way. And for that matter, so are individual souls. Churches start to die long before they officially close shop. It could be years or decades uh, that the worship band plays on and the pastor still gets up to preach and the congregation still shows up in their Sunday best and goes to the fall festival and this and that, but it's a rotten tree inside. It's dead and no one knows it. Experts across the board agree that the worldwide church is growing, growing, I know, it's hard to believe, faster than at any other point in history. Um, But in the West, it's in decline. Census records in the U.S. indicate that roughly 4,000 churches close their doors every year, um, and only about 1,000 are planted. That's a net loss of three grand in churches, not dollars, and it makes me wonder, how do you know if it's happening to you? How do you know if your church is headed in that direction? And if it is, if your church is dying, if your soul is dying, what do you do? Where do you go to get help? And I'm not just saying this to scare you. Um, I think this is actually a question of immense practical importance for us, How can we be an authentic community in relationship with Jesus when nearly everything in our culture is pulling us towards secularization and decline and decay? That's the trend in the United States right now. So to answer this question, I want to look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. We're uh, looking at the seven letters uh, that were written to various churches in Asia Minor. These are Jesus' words given through a vision to John uh, the pastor. And uh, John was, uh, was writing to the church in Sardis, a place called Sardis. And just as a heads up, we've been going through these seven letters. Sometimes they're a little harsh. This one is the most severe denunciation of them all. So buckle up. Here we go. Verse one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now notice that word reputation. The original Greek there is onoma. Can you say that with me? Anima. Anima. It's usually translated name. We see it later again in verse five. Uh, the very end of the end says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name, Anima, out of the book of life. I will confess his name, Anima, before my father and for his angels. Notice a pattern. The old King James version actually gets it right. It translates verse one like this. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou art alive and art dead. If we can bring the word art back into our language, that would be great for me. (laughs) Um, Now, the Christian community in Sardis has this exterior name or reputation. They have a good name, but it does not reflect the interior reality of the church or, for that matter, the interior reality of their constituents' souls. Um, they're known to others as a thriving church. Everything's going on, but spiritually they're dead. How do we know this? We know because the proof is in the pudding. Uh, I'm going to read the first couple verses again, but this time be look, on the lookout for this word erga, works. Okay? I know your works, erga... That's the Greek word there. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works, erga, complete in the sight of my God. We know that the church of Sardis is dead, despite their good reputation, because they are lacking in the works of God. Now, to clarify, we need to be careful not to confuse this with Paul's little phrase, uh, ergon namu works of the law. When Paul makes this point in the book of Galatians, a letter he wrote to another church, uh, he says that ergon ergon namu, uh, works of the law, can never justify you. He's making this important point that your piety, uh, specifically your observance of Jewish customs and ceremonial law, can never make you right before God. Following Jesus isn't some kind of tit-for-tat arrangement where you keep all the right rules and fulfill all your obligations, go to church, get your cookie every week, and then in the last day, Christ is like, well, let's total it all up and see if you made the cut. Like, we come to God through sheer, unmerited, unbridled mercy. And a lot of us think that once you come to God, then you continue on by your works, but that's actually not true. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how relationship with Jesus works. We continue and grow in God through sheer, unmerited, unbridled mercy, what one theologian calls one-way love. That's how it works. Paul is really clear about that, and we need to be too. Our passage this morning is talking about something totally different, and perhaps it's best to illustrate it with a story from the Gospels. Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with his disciples early in the morning. This is Matthew 28, 18, and uh, he performs this symbolic action to make a point about the spiritual state of his city, because um, the city claims of Jerusalem claims to worship God, but it's actually about to crucify God. So Jesus comes up to a fig tree, uh, and this was a symbol of the vitality of God's people. Um, and Jesus is seeking a snack, and it's early in the morning, and the local McDonald's won't be open for another, I don't know, 2,000 years. So he goes up to take a fig, but he finds that this fig tree is just leaves and wood. There's no fruit, and Jesus curses the fig tree, and it withers. Now, when on Monday you go in to um, share the gospel uh, with your co-workers, please, please do not start with this story. Um, It's not the one you lead with. But we have to remember that Jesus is making a point here. Um, He's making a point. Uh, A dead fig tree will keep its leaves, but it will never bear fruit. And Jerusalem, God's people, is the same way. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So works, erga, in Revelation, and fruit, in Matthew, are one and the same. They're what living trees and living churches and living people before God naturally produce. If the tree has no fruit, that's a good indicator that it's a dead tree. If a church or a Christian has no works, erga, that's a good indicator that they are spiritually dead. And Jesus says that the church in Sardis is largely dead. They're not bearing fruit. Their works are not complete. Now, I personally have this uh, enduring bad habit to want to just like pop fruit out as fast as I possibly can. Um, I feel, I start to feel a little insecure that maybe I'm not uh, bearing enough fruit in my Christian life, so I'm like, all right, let's get this, let's get this engine fired up, let's go, come on, come on plums, come on pears or whatever it is that, uh, come on good works, let's do it, let's prove that I am worthy of God by having enough external actions so that I can say to him in the quiet place, I'm really doing just fine, thank you tell you what I'd do if I were the church in Sardis. I'd bag a, buy a bag of Honeycrisp apples from Trader Joe's, get a few rolls of scotch tape, and I would tape those suckers onto my branches. <laughs> Say, look, Jesus, see? Good works. I'm fine. Really. I don't need you. Everything is great here. Everything is just fine. Everything is just fine. <laughs> do you ever hear that said in your family? Oh, goodness. Um... This seems like a good place to tell you some quick background about Sardis, ancient Sardis. Um, I could preach a whole sermon on this. This is a fascinating city. Sardis was a city in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, that was built right at the base of a mountain called Mount Tmalus. Say that with me, Mount Tmallus. Um and it's overlooking this broad and fertile plain and it had this amazing farmland and good territory for defense. They had a mountain they could run up, so if people invaded, they could just shoot their, I don't know, rocks and bows and arrows down at them. Um, And then it gets better. There's a stream flowing through the city that has gold in the water. I kid you not, there are specks of gold that, come through the, that are carried down off of the mountain in sediment. And the people of Sardis figured out a way to gather these specks of gold, melt them down, and make coins, these newfangled inventions. And um, scholars believe that Sardis was literally the birthplace of modern money. They just made money. They didn't have to like earn money or go out. They just, they just make more of it. Um, Sardis was crazy rich. Uh they dug up graves in the 20th century there and they found people just decked out in jewelry. It was known in its time as a the center for dyeing woolen cloth, which was a very luxurious uh, and affluent thing. And so Sardis is rich, but the church there is dead. Um this is not a coincidence. The Bible is clear that wealth can be extremely dangerous to a person's soul. And this is in part because money and resources make it possible to cover the brokenness and make everything appear just fine. Uh, Mark Twain in the late 19th century uh, looked around him and observed that there was this beautiful facade over America, America. There was industry booming, the economy was great, And yet there was corruption underneath the surface. And he came up with this term that just really stuck. He called it the gilded age. Gilding is taking a thin sheet of gold and covering something else. So you think it's a golden bar, but when you saw into it, it's just a rock. Or a poop, I don't know. (laughs) It's like a tree with fruit taped on the branches. But the quick fix is a waste of time. We can't keep up appearances with God. He knows our works. He sees everything. And there's a real danger um, in trying to fake it before an all-seeing deity. We pray this every week. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are, what? Open. And if the church or an individual has a reputation of being alive, but they're actually dead, this is the point at which a good and loving God, if he is in fact good and loving, because he's good and loving, will come against them in force. And that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 3. It's a little scary. Jesus says, "'If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief.'" And you will not know at what hour I come against you. (sighs) Not what you want to hear from Jesus. But notice there's even in this mercy and hope. Jesus doesn't say, I'll come like a thief. And um, you will not know what hour I'll come against you. And I will immediately cast you out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there will be no hope for you ever. He doesn't say that. He says... I'll come against you. Thank God for that. Some of us need to have our kingdoms torn down. Um, If my son was wandering into the road and a car was coming, I would come against him. I would pick him up and throw him out of the way if I had to. I would tackle him if necessary. If he scraped his knee, if he broke his arm, I would consider that a necessary trade-off in order to save his life you'd better believe I would come against him in that situation. I wouldn't do it because I'm mean, I would do it because I love him more than I love my own life. Why do we think God's any different? So far we've made the case that it's not enough just to look good or have a good name or a reputation for being alive. God doesn't care about your reputation. God cares that you are actually alive Um, because in the end, that's all that matters. Someday, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, you won't have your friends. You won't have your 401k. You won't have your stylish clothes or your career. um, You won't have your reputation. It'll just be you, just you, the real you, as you really are, the way no one else knows you before God. So this leads me to my second question, if that's a terrifying prospect for you. Um, how, do, how do the dead come back to life? How do dead churches and dead individuals come back to life? How do we get better? How do we not um, be closing our doors in 50 years? How do I become an authentic person? How do we as a church become an authentic community? Our passage offers several clues, and I want to read it again. Um, and see if you can identify them, okay? Here we go, verse one. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Here are the key words and phrases that I found. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard, keep it, and repent. I don't think this passage is trying to give us anything like a five-step process for regaining life, Um, as cool as that would be for my sermon Uh, It just isn't mechanical like that in relationships, especially with God. And that's not what the literature is doing here. But we get these clues that kind of cue us into the trajectory of kingdom life. So first, wake up. Make an honest assessment of what's actually going on. It's also can be translated, remain watchful. And this is actually the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, to admit the truth about yourself and about the world, to have the courage to confront it, even though you don't know how to handle it. If you're spiritually dead, if you're a tree with rot inside, you've got to admit it. And maybe this is you. Um... Maybe you have a great reputation as a Christian woman or man, but in the depth of your soul, you're like, I just don't know God. Maybe you feel all kinds of shame about this, and you're like, I gotta do better. Uh, Maybe you just want to bury it down deeper, keep up the facade. Maybe you feel like a rotten tree. Nobody actually knows except God, and maybe you. But the good news of the gospel is that God wants to take you into his life, he wants you to thrive and it's not too late. So wake up. Second, strengthen what remains. We learn in verse 4 that there are faithful believers, even in Sardis, this terrible church. It says this: yet there are some among you who have not soiled their garments. They've not wandered so deeply into the ways of their secular environment um, that, or their pagan environment, that they uh, are no longer faithful to Christ. They are faithful. The church is in grave danger, but it's not completely dead. The Spirit is still at work in Sardis. And this is encouraging. Here's a good rule of thumb. Uh, Find where the Holy Spirit is at work in your church or your community and go there. Strengthen what remains. Maybe it's just a person who lives and breathes grace and truth and love. And you think to yourself, I want that. I want what she has. Well, Go ask them to coffee, like be around that person. Strengthen what remains. Go where the spirit of God is moving. Third, remember what you received and heard. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. We hear from Saint Paul, so we take promise hold of God's promises and then we keep them. It's by the promise that we actually come to life. So uh, keeping it, it's this this holistic view. Um, it's not just this head knowledge that we get up here but it's an integration of head and heart we allow the gospel to actually change um, our way of life our patterns because Jesus doesn't just want to captivate your mind he does want that but he wants more wants the whole thing all of it finally repent this means turn back or rethink your life just turn back to God acknowledge that if you're going against the grain of God's ways what you're doing was wrong and then come into the fold that's it you don't have to slaughter any sheep You don't have to atone for your sins you don't have to go and like get a whip and wear a hair shirt under your jacket Um, just yield just yield to God and come before him so back to my original question How do we stay alive as a church? How do we stay alive as persons before God? And I think the simple underlying reality, underlying this text in Revelation is this. Just be with Jesus. Just be with him. Your life, your vitality is a result of your connection to Jesus himself. He says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide or remain in me. Just be with him. That's all that's needed for the life of the church. You don't have to um, have like the best music or the coolest worship and best preaching. You don't have to have the most amazing events. You don't have to have the most like cutting edge articulation of what's going on in our culture in order for us to thrive as a church. All we have to do is just be with Jesus. And Jesus says, that's life. If you're with me, you're alive. If you're apart from me, you're dead. That's it. Uh, if, you're, if you're with me with five people in the sanctuary, guess what? You're alive. If you have 5,000 people and you're building a new sanctuary and you've gone off the rails, guess what? You're dead. You're wasting your time. You're a rector killer. <sighs> so, he is all that is needed And he's more than enough. I want to close with this marvelous promise in verse six. Remember, this is a church that's been so focused on keeping up their reputation, their good name, keeping it all together. I'm not a dead tree, I'm alive. I'm really alive. I promise. I really am. I swear. But what does he say? says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. People in Sardis would have understood this. And I will never blot out his name, Anima, out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before my angels. You have a name with God. And it's better than one you can make for yourself. So my prayer for us all is that we would accept it. Amen.